Secular scientists are continually searching for answers about human evolution. Although they haven't found the information they're looking for, that doesn't mean their questions can't be answered. Stay tuned. Today, there may be many ethnic groups, but we all go back to knowing this family. We all go back to Adam and Eve. This is Science, Scripture, and Salvation, a Creation Radio Journal. I'm Chris O'Brien with the Institute for Creation Research. Evolutionists have many questions about the history of human origins and behavior. However, they refuse to even consider the biblical concept of creation, which ironically holds all the answers to their baffling questions. Thank you for joining us for part two of Answers to Unanswerable Evolutionary Questions. Today, we'll respond to a few more of the 125 unanswered questions found in the July 2005 edition of Science Magazine. The issues we'll be discussing on this program all deal with human evolution. And it's interesting to note that three of the four questions go hand in hand. They are, how many kinds of humans coexisted in the recent past and how did they relate? And, what are the evolutionary roots of language and music? Dr. Gary Parker is an ICR biologist and founder of the Creation Adventures Museum in Arcadia, Florida. He says the false belief that there is more than one kind of human has caused terrible atrocities in the past. In the early part of the 1900s, in the 20s and 30s, evolutionists were teaching that there were several species, perhaps even several genera, of different human beings, and that the African blacks, for instance, and the Australian aboriginals were classified by some evolutionists not only as different species, but different genera, even more different than one species is from another. And so they might roughly, vaguely call them human, although one evolutionist, the German Darwin, he's sometimes called Ernst Haeckel, said that to include the Australian aboriginals with human beings meant that we would also have to include the gorillas and the orangutans. <laughs> and so that was an extreme evolutionary view, one that promoted a ferocious racism and feeling of racial superiority that led directly and fed directly into World War II and the horrible consequences of that. ICR President Dr. John Morris would agree that racism is an evolutionary idea. Darwin's book, Origin of Species... The subtitle for that book was The Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. And so our modern concept of racism comes right out of Darwin. Uh, in fact, Hitler picked up Darwin's book and he says, this is the proof that I need, that the Aryan subspecies is more highly evolved than other subspecies. And he used Darwin's thinking to justify the killing of those he felt that were inferior. Thankfully, we don't hear this kind of hate and ignorance being propagated by the evolutionary community today. Dr. Parker. Well, modern evolutionists have at last abandoned evolutionary racism, and we can be glad for that. All of the different people, all of the different sizes from the tall, skinny Watusi, you know, to the short pygmies, to the stocky Balkans, you know, all the different sizes and skin colors, and all of these kinds are just variation within kind, descendants of Adam and Eve belonging to one family. There's only one race of people, the human race, and we're all parts of it. Dr. Morris. Did you know that the word race is not even in the Bible? It's a concept that's unbiblical. The Bible says God has made of one blood all nations on the earth that dwell. Today, there may be many ethnic groups, but we all go back to Noah and his family. We all go back to Adam and Eve. But what about the many different languages and dialects worldwide? How did they come into being? While evolutionists still have no answer to that question, the book of Genesis makes it very clear how language spread throughout the world. 
It was at the Tower of Babel when Noah's descendants gathered once again in rebellion against God. And God says, as long as they're speaking one language, there's nothing that can be beyond them. And so he confuses their languages, separates them into various language groups, and then sends them out from Babel. He had told them at the flood to scatter and fill the earth. They had rebelled against that, gathered at Babel, but he forced them out now by confusing their languages. So, because groups divided into their own languages, nationalities were formed. That was your choices for marriage, is in that group that could talk to you. And so this smaller breeding population began to acquire tribal characteristics. We know from genetics that this can happen in just a few generations. And they can adapt. Uh, natural selection does work. As a language group migrated to, say, up into Ice Age Europe or Equatorial Africa or wherever, they, they would have certain selective environmental pressures and there would be a tendency to develop tribal characteristics. But no matter what nationality you happen to be, God created you. He created all of us in a wonderful way and loves us. In fact, He gave His only begotten Son so that we could have eternal life in heaven with Him. We're all part of the human race. We're all sinners. We all need a Savior. And Jesus Christ's death on the cross paid the penalty for individuals from every tongue and tribe and nation. And He will accept any who turn to Him for forgiveness and salvation. Standing around his throne for all eternity will be individuals from every tongue and tribe and nation, the Bible tells us. We've addressed unanswered evolutionary questions regarding human evolution, nationalities, and language. But where does music fit in? Dr. Morris says music did not evolve through animal noises, as some evolutionists believe, but rather God gave man both language and music as forms of communication. Music can communicate all sorts of emotions and information to the listener, but where did it come from? The animal noises, the animal barks and grunts, and even the birds chirping doesn't compare with what humans can do as they make music. I think this is part of being created in the image of God. This is a God-given gift to us. You know, we see in Genesis chapter 5 that man, even before the flood, was constructing musical instruments. It mentions both string instruments and wind instruments. You see, music has always been a part of the image of God. The last question we've taken from the 125 unanswerable questions in the July 2005 edition of Science Magazine deals with our DNA. The question, what is all that junk doing in our genome, is answered by ICR molecular biologist Dr. Dan Criswell. I don't think there really is any junk in our genome. It's a concept that evolution would predict because... According to evolutionary theory, we would expect to find leftovers from our ancestors. And so when an evolutionist looks at DNA, they would expect to find some DNA that no longer had any useful function in humans, but was probably segments of DNA that was useful in an ancestor of human beings. But the concept of useless structures inhabiting our bodies isn't a new proposal. The idea of junk DNA actually is related to vestigial organs. A little over a 100 years ago, a scientist named Wiedersheim proposed that there were over a 100 vestigial organs and structures in the human body. And part of the reason for this was that nobody at the time knew what some of the functions were for these structures, like tonsils, the appendix, the coccyx, and things of that nature. But Darwin had also predicted that we'd find these things, vestigial structures. Because the large majority of the DNA had no known function a few years ago, secular scientists 
with the same evolutionary mindset that claims some organs to be vestigial, labeled this DNA as junk. But not recognizing a function for the DNA was not the only reason it was considered useless. Many of these regions of DNA are highly repeatable areas of DNA. In other words, there would be a strand of DNA, say, 300 bases long, and the sequence of those 300 bases would be repeated over and over in the DNA. And so that was assumed not to have any function. There are things called pseudogenes that look like genes, are very similar in sequence to functioning genes, but are a little different and weren't known to be transcribed. In other words, expressed as proteins. And so those were considered to be leftover genes that weren't maintained, and they're called pseudogenes or false genes. So these would be examples of what was considered to be junk DNA. However, as the years go by, science is discovering that this so-called junk is useful after all. Some even play important roles in gene regulation and in cell reproduction called mitosis. Many of these regions of DNA do have specific functions. For example, some of the pseudogenes have been shown to play a role in regulation of the genes that they are mapped next to. Another area which is quite interesting are highly repeatable units called ALUs, A-L-U. These have about 300 bases, as I said earlier. They're repeated over and over, and there might be 500,000 to a million copies of these ALU sequences. And they were considered to be junk DNA. But in the last few years, it's become obvious that ALU sequences actually have a very important function. This is where proteins called cohesins bind to DNA, and this enables chromatids, when they line up in the center of a cell during mitosis, to be attached to each other, and then they separate so that the two daughter cells each receive one of the pair of chromosomes that are needed for cell function. So it turns out that these ALU sequences, thought at one time to be junk DNA, are actually sequences that allow the chromatids to be held together during mitosis. So there is a function for them. But Dr. Criswell cautions that even with today's advanced scientific knowledge, there's still a whole lot to discover about the genome. There are some parts of the genome that the functions are not known, large portions. You know, there seems to be this misconception that we know an awful lot about genes, how they work, how the genome works, how it's structured. We know some things. But the truth is is that science actually knows very little about how the genome works. And so, yes, science can identify coding regions, promoter regions, and so forth. And there are other regions that have names like lines and signs that are highly repeatable areas of DNA. And so all of this has been mapped out and named. But the actual function and how the genome works still is not really well understood. And it doesn't matter whether you have a creationist or an evolutionist perspective. We don't know how a lot of this stuff works either as creationists. I think it's really important to understand that even as creationists, as we look at this, we can't give people all the answers they want. We don't know either. An evolutionist doesn't know either. 
And so an evolutionist looks at it one way and we look at it another. And there's just the information that everybody's trying to interpret. And until all the science, all the experiments are done with it and it's determined what the function is, we can only continue to make hypotheses about it. But creationists do maintain that even though the curse of sin has altered God's perfect world, the Creator had a purpose and a reason for everything He had made. Everything would appear to have a design and a function. That doesn't mean that there aren't stretches of DNA that don't work. As with anything in creation, in a fallen world, you're going to find things that don't work. People's organs stop working at some point in time. And so there are areas of the genome that you might be able to find that are not functioning the way that they were originally designed to function. As our program comes to a close, we hope that you've been encouraged. It's our desire at ICR to show that the Bible can be trusted, both historically and scientifically, and to give facts that will build your faith. As Christians, we need to understand the scientific basis for our beliefs. We pray that this program will aid you in your discovery of science and the Bible. You know, most people aren't aware that today there are thousands of scientists that are convinced of the truth of biblical creation and not evolution. Our non-denominational ministry aims to restore and strengthen the Genesis foundations of the Christian faith. If you've enjoyed today's edition of Science, Scripture, and Salvation, a Creation Radio Journal, why not visit us on the web to find out more about the work of ICR. The address is www.icr.org. Again, www.icr.org. Science, Scripture, and Salvation, a Creation Radio Journal, is a production of ICR. For the Institute for Creation Research, I'm Chris O'Brien. Thanks for tuning in.